0: We exist to see
1: God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. I'm going to be reading in Romans eight twenty-six through thirty. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified.
0: Good morning. Well, my name is Sam. I'm one of the pastors. If we haven't had a chance uh, to meet yet, let me say welcome. I'm glad that you're here and uh, glad to be in this text. Before we jump into it, let me just give a couple of announcements. Um, If you would, when you are done, when we're done with this service, um, please uh, be sure to pick up any mess that you leave behind, especially the little communion cups. Um, Our our cleaning crew um, finds so many of them after every service, and so be sure to, to um, keep them yourself and throw them away, and then along those lines, um, be sure to clear out uh, relatively quickly after we're done with this service. They have to um, go through and sanitize all the seats and everything in between um, the second and third service, and the, the longer it takes for them to get there, the, the more likely things will still be wet um, by the time the third service comes in. So. Um, uh, that 's it that 's all the announcements I have i don't i 'm not very good at announcements because i don 't know how to transition well from announcement to sermon, so uh, transition here. Um, let me invite you to pray with me and then we'll we 'll jump into this text together <clears throat> Our infinitely high and holy triune God, our vision of you this morning cannot be grand enough father your Providential care for our lives, lavishly on display in this passage, is overwhelming. Help us, O Spirit of Christ, to believe these precious promises. As we look at these words, would you invade our self-love, our self-focus, our self-obsession, invade it all with a staggering declaration of your glory. Whatever else we need, Lord Jesus, we need most of all a spiritual eye full of your divine beauty. These promises are precious gifts given to the saints on account of your work on our behalf. So may we be overcome by them with gratitude. Forbid that we would dare leave these promises at arm's length. Forbid that we would refuse your comfort. Forbid that we would doubt you. We pray also For all those who hear my voice who are not lovers of God, Lord, make the distance between their hearts and these promises an intolerable pain. Sting them with the reminder that these promises offer no hope to them so long as they remain outside of Christ. And let the insufferable awareness of their state drive them to Christ. Lord Jesus, these are your words. Speak, Lord. For your servants are listening. In the strong name of Christ Jesus, we ask. Amen. Well, we're continuing to hike up this Mount Everest we call Romans 8. And at this point, we're reaching such great heights that our breath is taken away. The vistas from up here are are beautiful, but the height is so overwhelming that the the altitude threatens to undo us. On more than one occasion this past week, I had to stand up and walk away from my study just to catch some air. (laughs) I've been overwhelmed by this passage. It flattens me with awe. It almost feels irresponsible of God to give us such lavish promises. And now, as far as I can tell, the biggest challenge that I face is presenting these glorious promises to you in such a way so as... Uh, so as for you too to be flattened in awe by them so that none of my quirks or personality traits or inadequacies or any such thing distracts you from seeing and savoring God. That's what I've been worried about, worried about getting in the way of of letting just the the simple uh, glory of this passage comfort you. Let me give you my best effort summary of what this passage is trying to teach us. This is my thesis of what I think this passage is trying to teach us. On the basis of the work of God the Son, God the Spirit prays for us to God the Father so as to fulfill God's purpose in working all things out for our good to the end that we who were predestined to be His will be glorified. Let me say that again. On the basis of the work of God the Son, God the Spirit praise for us to God the Father, so as to fulfill God's purpose in working all things out for our good to the end that we who were predestined to be His will be glorified. In sum, God promises in this passage to see to it that we make it into the promised land. And so I'd like to... Move through this text and unpack that thesis statement bit by bit. So let's begin in verse 26. Read these first two verses with me. These are the words of God. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This verse begins with the word likewise, which of course harkens us back to what was just said in the previous passage. And that passage was all about hope and glory. It's been the whole thrust of Romans 8 to point us beyond the groanings and the, the tension that we feel right now longing for glory It's it's been pointing us beyond all of that to the hope of glory, the promise that we have in Christ. And Paul concludes that section with now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes in what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And now Paul says likewise, which means whatever he's about to say, it will involve these ideas of hope for the future and patience in the present. Whatever he's about to say, it will help us to be patient in the present and to have hope for the future. So he says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. What is that? What's our weakness? For, and that word for is telling us he's about to explain what he means, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. So the weakness that the Spirit helps us with in this case is perplexity in our prayer life. I don't even know what to pray for. A couple of weeks ago, I was praying with a church member who began her prayer with, Lord, I don't even know how to talk to you right now. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt like you don't even know what to say to God? Paul is saying that that's a weakness that the Spirit helps you with. Well, how does he do that? Let's read on. So we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So this is how the Spirit helps us when we don't know what to pray for as we ought. He prays for us. And He does so, He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That's what He intercedes for us with, groanings. So he takes these groanings and he brings them to God for us. Now, what are these groanings? Whose are they? We know that the Spirit is bringing them to God in an act of intercession for us when we, in our weakness, don't know what to pray for as we ought. But what are they? What are these groanings? Whose are they? Are they ours or are they the Spirit's groanings? And I think there's good reason for us to say yes to this either or Question: That is, there is a sense in which these groanings are ours and the Spirit's, though not in the same way. Because on the one hand, this chapter has already said a great deal about our groaning. So it's natural for us to read this as a continuation of what has come before. But on the other hand, we have to remember that what's happening here, what the Spirit is doing in this passage, is He's acting on behalf of of us on account of our inadequacies. We are lacking something. And the Spirit is helping us fulfill that lack. The point is that we don't know what to pray for and the Spirit is praying for us in our stead, which coming together, I think, looks something like this. While we wait on this side of glory, we wait eagerly as those who are weak and perplexed, so weak and so perplexed that we often don't even know what to pray for. But God is so for us that He has given us His own Spirit to stir up and translate, as it were, those beyond-description groanings, and He turns them into prayers. He turns them into prayers on our behalf. And I think we get a hint of this from the following verse. And he who searches hearts, that is, God knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. These intercessions are things that the Father finds when He searches our hearts and they are also the mind of the Spirit. So they're apparently something God finds when He searches hearts. God searches our hearts and when He searches our hearts, He finds these intercessions. And in finding those intercessions, He finds the mind of the Spirit. You have to get the weight of this. Let me try to to paint a picture that I trust is familiar to many of you. So there you are. You're absolutely perplexed. You're lamenting the weakness of your flesh and you feel paralyzed. Maybe you're frustrated. Maybe you're sad. Maybe you're angry. Maybe you're anxious. Maybe you have desires and they're conflicting and you don't know what's sinful and what's not. You don't know what to pray for, but you know that you probably should pray. So you sit down, you close your eyes, you try to form a word, you try to form a thought, and you come up short. You're perplexed. You just shake your head. You don't even know where to begin. You're at a loss. Meanwhile, while that pathetic scene is taking place, God is searching your heart. And what he finds there is the Holy Spirit praying for you, giving to the Father the wordless groans that you can't articulate and doing it in a way that the Father understands perfectly. An intra-Trinitarian conversation of perfect understanding is taking place on your behalf while you're fretting about not knowing what to pray for as you ought. You don't know what to pray for and the Spirit is praying the exact thing that you need. While you don't know what to pray for. And he does all of this according to the will of God. Now, you know how we learned to pray from Jesus in the garden, if it be your will? We always use that qualifier, if it be your will. Jesus prayed that way as a human. You know Christ has two natures, divine and human. And he prayed that way as a human, as the perfect human so that he could be the perfect sinless human who could be our perfect sacrifice for us. He was the perfect human who prayed in according to, according to the will of God perfectly for us. So that he could give that perfection to us. And he also did that to demonstrate for us what faithful humans pray like. And faithful humans, faithful men and women, when they pray, they pray uh, 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 for and about anything and everything with the qualifier if it be your will. And we say that because we can't be certain if what we're asking God for uh, is is His will. And while we want the thing that we're asking for, we want God's will even more. So we, we pray, if it be your will. So even those prayers are helpful because they bring us and our will into conformity with God's will. God is always shaping us In prayer, So even if his answers are no or not yet to our prayer request, he's still using those prayer requests to shape us. But here's the point that I want to make from this passage. The Spirit never has to issue that qualifier if it be your will. He never says that. He never says that when he intercedes for you with those wordless groanings. When he prays for you, all of his prayers are according to the will of God. What does that mean? It means that all of them are intercessions that will be answered in the affirmative. And remember, these promises are for those who are in Christ Jesus, those for whom there is therefore now no condemnation. What God did for us, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, that is when He sent Christ in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned our sin and His flesh, when He did that, He was making it possible for the Spirit to indwell us. And as we saw in verse 11, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in us. And He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies. Will also. That's a promise. And one of the ways He comes through on that promise is by interceding for us with groanings too deep for words according to the will of God. We have been swept up into the Trinity's one undivided divine will. The Spirit is praying to the Father for our behalf. And next week, we're going to see that Christ, in another way, also intercedes for us as our great high priest, which means we are secure. We will get there. It's as if Christ is the vehicle. The Father and His will is the destination and the Spirit is the driver. In Christ, we will get there. The Trinity is seeing to it that we will get there. For us to not get there, who are His, there would have to be an interruption in this divine, eternal will of God. And that is not possible. So that's the first part of our thesis statement. On the basis of the work of God the Son, God the Spirit, Praise for us to God the Father. What does that mean for us? Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. On the merits of God the Son, God the Spirit, prays for us to God the Father, so as to fulfill God's purpose and working all things for our good. Now, it's been the habit of some Christians in the Christian world as of late, to disparage the tendency to go to passages like this one in order to comfort themselves or comfort others who find themselves in circumstances of suffering. To do this, we are told, is to commit that unpardonable sin of minimizing suffering. Don't just slap a Bible verse on the problem, we're told. Don't just quote Scripture at me. I'm suffering. Suffering. And to be sure, there is a way in which an ill-timed and ill-tempered word of truth can minim- minimize suffering. But brothers and sisters, we should not refuse to go to these kinds of promises to find comfort in times of suffering. That's what they're for. That is what they are for. And, and going to these passages in times of suffering is not automatically to trivialize suffering. Suffering. You can only claim that it is if you think that Paul says this in a flippant way, right? As if you were to say, suck it up. It will all work out in the end. But that's not the case at all. These two words in Romans 8, all things are not flippantly spoken. Radiating from these two words is divine, nuclear, power. This is not a promise that is potent, uh, flippantly spoken. It is rather potent enough to cut through the toughest of afflictions. That's what it's for. So we should be administering this promise to us in our suffering and others in their suffering. That's what it's for. So hear me, I don't say this lightly. If you are a Christian, God is working all things out for your good. Everything. And all things working together for your good means that the tragic situations in your life are not simply obstacles that God intends to overcome for your good. They are rather tools in His hand that He is using for your good. This is why 2 Corinthians 4.17 does not say, for this light and momentary affliction may prepare for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's not what He says. He says, this light and momentary affliction is Preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You can bank on it. What's preparing our glory? Afflictions. Suffering. So when Paul says that for those who love God and are called according to His purpose, all things work together for good, this is not spiritual Christian-y talk. Sentimentality. That's not what's happening here. This is literal. So think. Think about... Anything in your life, think about any circumstance, any event, any relationship, any loss, any tragedy, any frustration, when you ask the question, is this thing for my good, I have a a two-step test to help you answer that question. Step number one, you ask yourself, am I a Christian? Am I a Christian? Do I love God? Am I called according to his purpose? If the answer is yes to that question, you can move on to step two. And step two is to ask, is this thing that I'm thinking about, is this circumstance, is this frustration, whatever it is that I'm thinking about, is this thing, does it fit within the conceptual category of all things? The answer is yes, it is. So step one, am I a Christian? Yes. Step two, is this thing fit within the category designation of all things? If the answer is yes, and it is, you have your answer. Yes. Yes. It, whatever it is, is working for your good. Yes, even that thing, the thing that you're thinking about, the thing that you're asking, how can this possibly work together for my good? Even that thing. Now, this doesn't mean that we know how it all works out for your good. How will your great-grandfather's drug addiction in his 20s work for your good? How will your cancer work for your good? How will your broken marriage work for your good? I mean, of of all the countless thousands of threads in the tapestry of God's providence, you may see a tiny fraction of one thread on this side of glory. And then I think we'll spend eternity tracing out the rest. But I, I think that in glory, we're going to be awed by the grace of God in ever-increasing ways by the inexhaustible surprise twists that we didn't see coming. Oh, I didn't see that coming. That's how God was using this thing in my life for my good. I had no idea, but a thousand years into heaven, now I, now I, now I see what God was doing. Maybe God providentially used the stomach virus of some obscure Egyptian thousands of years ago to eventually impact the conversion of Billy Graham or something like that? You know, we'll find out. I don't know. I don't know what this will look like, but I do know that these promises are exhaustive and limitless in potency. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In a recent sermon, John Piper uh, said, every to, on every tombstone of every broken dream you experience in this life will read, Satan meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's the promise of eight, Romans 8, 28. Paul says, we know, we know. That's a statement of certainty. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. How does he know that? Verse 29, for, so now Paul is going to shore up and justify this overwhelmingly bold claim that he just made. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. How do we know that God works all things out for our good? Because this God is the God who secures the end from the beginning. He is completely providential. With these two verses, we come now to what many theologians have described as the golden chain of salvation, the golden chain of redemption. And in this chain, not one of the links has has even a hint of weakness. Each divine action corresponds with unrelenting tightness to the next. He calls, He justifies, He glorifies. But listen, before we unpack verse 30... I want to briefly cut off a poor interpretation of verse 29 that sometimes threatens to keep Christians from drinking in the security of this passage. Seems like, like some Christians are like, well, I can't, I can't find that much comfort in these promises, so I have to, I have to uh, you know, limit the amount of comfort that I get from these passages. We shouldn't do that. So some have made a big deal about how this word foreknowledge precedes predestination in verse 29. So they'll say something like, we see God didn't, didn't choose people irrespective of their free will. So they'll try to squeeze free will decision before foreknowledge. So they'll say God looked through the corridors of time and He saw who would freely choose Him. And then based on that foreknowledge, He predestined those who would choose Him. That's, that, that can't work in this passage for several reasons, but the biggest, most important reason is that foreknowledge here in this passage can't be referring merely to some observational knowledge that God exercises by virtue of his omniscience, just observing, just looking to see what happens. That's not what foreknowledge means here. It can't mean that because after all, he foreknows everybody in that way, even people who go to hell. He foreknows those people in that way. So foreknowledge in this passage can't be referring to that because the same group of people that he foreknows in this passage are also predestined. It refers not simply to some general understanding, but rather to designation. It refers to setting apart, to setting His covenantal love upon When Romans 8.29 says that God foreknows some, it is saying that He knew them in an intimate and loving way. In a real way, it is saying that He foreloved them. We're reminded of how, you know, in Genesis, for example, it says that Adam knew his wife, Eve. Eve. There is this covenantal, intimate love that's taking place. This covenantal, intimate knowing that is taking place. In the parallel passage is Ephesians 1:5, which says, "In love, He predestined us for adoption." So foreknowledge and predestination in verse 29 here are essentially synonyms. Their difference has to do with the object they refer to. So God foreknows us; He foreknows us, and in that foreknowledge, in that covenantal for loving, He predestines us unto our Destiny, which is to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You see, the the son's purpose in coming as the second Adam to live and die and rise and ascend was never so that he could uh, set himself apart as this lone, sinless human being. God's purpose was always for Christ to have many brothers who are conformed to his image, And that is the destiny of all of those God foreknows. All those that God foreknows, their destiny that He foreknows in this way, Romans 8, 29 way, their destiny is to be conformed to the image of His Son. And thus all of our lives from beginning to end fits within the unbreakable matrix of God's providence. It's all part of His work of salvation. Look at verse 30. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Not one person in that group of those whom are lost. It's the same those whom who are foreknown and predestined and called and justified and glorified. Not one is missing. Not one is added in the middle of that process those whom no more and no less. How does this work in time, though, experientially? Well, those whom He predestined, He also called. And that word called does not refer to the broad call of the gospel that's extended to anyone and everyone who hears it proclaimed. Right? That's, that's what we call the general call of salvation. And that's what happens when we assume the role of Christ's ambassadors, and we speak on His behalf, and we invite anyone and everyone to place their faith in Christ and be brought into this covenantal family. That's the general call of the gospel. And that's not what this passage is referring to. And we know that that's not what this passage is referring to because in this passage, the same group of people who are called are also justified. And we know that not everyone who hears the gospel proclaimed Will be justified. So, this is not referring to the general call of salvation. It's rather referring to the effectual call of God. The effectual call of God. This is when God takes the general call of our gospel proclamation. He takes that and he sharpens it, as it were, into an arrow that he uses to pierce through the toughest heart. And in doing that, he is summoning them to himself. This is an effectual call where he sovereignly summons those to his presence. And those who he does that to are justified. Again, this word justification refers to God's legal declaration of pardon and righteousness to someone, it's the status that God bestows upon a person so that they are no longer guilty that they are now righteous. And He bestows this status on those whom He calls on account of the merits of Christ. So when Christ comes to live the perfect life of obedience to the law and die as a sinless substitute, an atonement for sin, He was both receiving retributive justice that we deserve. That's why we're no longer guilty, because He's suffering for us. And He was also earning an attributive justice for us, merit for us. And that's why we're counted righteous. We just sang about this. My breaches of the law are His, and His obedience, mine. Right, And now because of that, we're justified. So here's how it works. Christ accomplishes our justification in His person and work. And when the Father calls effectually, He is calling them, Unto Christ, calls them to Christ. And with the instrument of faith, they receive Christ, and on the merits of his justifying work, they are now counted righteous. But here's the important point there is no faith where there is no effectual call. Right? God effectually calls people to himself. And the fruit, the effect of that effectual call is faith. And we know that, especially in this passage, this is why faith is not even mentioned in this passage. We're talking about justification and faith isn't mentioned. Why? Because this passage is not concerned with what we are doing. This passage is strictly concerned with what God is doing. And it's saying that everyone that God calls are justified. He doesn't effectually call anyone without them being Justified. And then notice, this, this point is, is brought home strongly with this final glorious link in the golden chain. And those whom He justifies, He also will glorify. Did you catch that? I tricked you. That's not what He says. He doesn't say, and those whom He justifies, He also will glorify. He says, those whom He justified, He also glorified. What does that mean? If I'm justified, I'm glorified. What does that mean? Well, a couple of things. First of all, we need to remember this space-time portal of of the Spirit's presence, what He accomplishes for us as our guarantee. Because we have the surety of the Spirit, we are already saved, and we're not yet glorified. We are seated with Christ now, and we will be seated with Christ in the future. We are glorified with Christ, and we will be glorified with Christ. So in part, this last link in the golden chain is pointing us to the already-not-yet-nature of our final state that we've talked about a lot in this chapter of Romans. But also, I think Paul is driving a rhetorical point home. This is a rhetorical device that he's using. Remember, this whole passage is about hope. It's about showering this embarrassment of riches on his readers in the form of overwhelming promises that make up for their insecurity and their groanings. So we're waiting here on this side of the return of Christ and we're groaning and we're eagerly waiting for the redemption of our bodies. And we, at times we cry out in exasperation, Oh, wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? And so at times it feels questionable about whether or not we will get there and Paul is, in effect, saying, it's as good as done. If you're justified, you're glorified. It reminds me of the verse that we sing by that old 19th century hymnist John Kent. He swore, but once the deed was done. T'was settled by the three in one. Christ was appointed to redeem all that the Father loved in him. Paul is trying to get us to be utterly confident in God. Just look at the language in this verse. Look at who's active and look at who's passive. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Who's the mover in this verse? Who's the actor? Who's getting all of the work done? He is. He's predestining and calling and justifying and glorifying. And what are we doing in all of this? We're passively receiving it all. We're the beneficiaries. All we do is receive. We're, we're our, where am I in this verse? Where am I? You know where I am? I am being passively predestined by another. I'm being passively called by another. I'm being passively justified by another. I'm being passively glorified by another. I'm just receiving it all. And Think about what hope this does to the Christians who are reading this this chapter and they're thinking, yes, I do feel that inward groan. Paul's saying, God has you. He is making sure that you will make it into the promised land. Makes it kind of difficult to issue pastoral charges. We're easy, depending on how you look at it. My pastoral charge to the Christian this morning is this. I charge you to believe this. (laughs) Believe it. It feels irresponsible of God to give us promises this lavish. We're we're hesitant to take it, aren't we? Really? (laughs) There's really that much security for the Christian? Who's just swept up in what, the, in what God is doing? These are promises for you. These are precious promises that God gives to Christians. And we are not pious for refusing them. We're not super Christians by saying, mm, I don't know, I can't receive that promise for myself. That doesn't make us super Christians. That makes us blasphemers. Because that is saying that we don't think that God is trustworthy. That we don't believe God. We don't take Him at His word. Who are we to refuse gifts that God wants to give us? So just receive it. Are you more trustworthy than God? No. Then believe Him. In Christ, God is so for you that He sees to it that you will get to glory. On the basis of the work of God the Son, God the Spirit prays for us to God the Father so as to fulfill God's purpose in working all things out for our good to the end that we who were predestined to be His will be glorified. See God's grace in this passage. See it and savor it. Contemplate it. Turn it over in your mind. Let it flatten you. You know what will happen if you do that? you will find yourself loving God. You'll find yourself loving Him for everything that He communicates in this passage. And then, you know what that will do? It will increase your assurance even further because then you'll go back to Romans 8.28 and you'll read, and we know that for those who love God, and you'll say, hey, that's me. I love God. I'm loving God because of what this passage is telling me. And so then you'll be able to take these promises with even more assurance. Also, believing these promises will transform your prayer life. What more confidence do you need to pray with total abandon the knowing that even when you don't know what to pray for as you ought, the Spirit is praying for you according to the will of God. This past week I found much comfort in this passage. Right? When you have ten things going on in your mind, when you have desires and Worries and frustrations and sorrows and hopes and dreads. And some of it's sin and some of it's not. And you're not sure. You're not sure what is sin and what's righteous or what's God's will. This passage means that you can bring it all. You can bring that whole jumbled, knotted mess over to God and say, Father, here's my heart. I can't search it like you can. But I know that when you search my heart, you find the Spirit praying for me there according to your will. So, here it is. Here's my heart, Lord. Take it. Seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And non-Christian, if there are any non-believers here today, my charge to you is very much the same. If you're not a Christian this morning, you're charged to believe this. I charge you to come in. You're invited to be, become one of these Christians so as to position yourself to receive all of these promises is yours. Are you wondering if they possibly can be yours? Are you wondering if you're numbered among those who have been predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son? Well, don't look to yourself for the answer. If you're wondering, don't look at yourself. That's like trying to use your eyeballs to look at themselves. Eyeballs are no good to look at themselves. They're for looking at something else. Look to Christ instead. Look to Christ instead. Will you have him by faith? Take him. Perhaps God is effectually calling you to himself even today. So I invite you to Christ. Receive justification. You are guilty and in need of sacrifice for your sin. You are unrighteous and in need of a righteousness that you cannot earn. And if you would have Christ as your savior, he will be for you that sacrifice and that righteousness. And if you're wondering if the Father is calling you, look nowhere else but to Christ. Look nowhere else but to Christ. Is the Father calling me? Look to Christ. Are you looking to Christ by faith? Then the answer is yes. What does that mean for me before I was was looking to Christ by faith then? It means you were predestined. What does that mean for me as an object of wrath? None of your business. What you're concerned with, what you're charged with, is looking to Christ by faith. You leave the rest up to God. And you can do that even now, as we believers take this meal of communion like we do every week. As always, I want to remind you, if you're not a Christian, that this meal is a church meal. It's a meal for those who are part of Christ's body. And therefore, only the church should take it. And let the awkwardness of us getting up and taking this meal while you remain seated Remind you that while you're not counted among the saints now, and while none of these promises are for you now, you may be. You may receive them. You can get in on this. Receive Christ by faith. If you have any questions about what that looks like, ask any of us who come up and take this meal. By taking this meal, we're saying, we'd love to tell you about Christ. And Emmaus, as we take this meal, as always, take it by faith as the appropriation of these very promises that we've been looking at in Romans 8. Christ died and rose to merit your conformity to Him, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so, He fellowships with us. He fellowships with us at this table. So come to this table as an expression of worship and as a resolve to believe these promises. The body of Christ broken for me, I believe. Help my unbelief. The blood of Christ shed for me, I believe. helped my unbelief. I'm going to pray and then ask for uh, the believers to come down. You'll, You'll come down, exit to this row on my left. Receive your hand sanitizer over here. Come and receive the elements from the table and you'll return to your seat along this aisle to my right. Let me pray for us. Our triune God, you are so good to us. You have swept us up into the eternal triune love. And you promise us such with this meal. Lord Jesus, it is on account of your work, your life for us, your death for us, your resurrection for us, your ascension for us. It's on account of your work that we can receive any of these promises. And that is the work of which these elements are an emblem. The bread, an emblem of your body. The cup, an emblem of your blood. As we receive these promises by faith, commune with us by Your Spirit. We want to love You more. We want to live in more, more in accordance with the promises every day that we have, every step we take as we march steadily on to glory. So feed us now. Feed us with another meal on the road, in the wilderness, and let it be for us a foretaste of better things to come, the banquet of the wedding feast of the Lamb in Your kingdom. And may more of your people be brought in by the witness of our acceptance of this meal. God, would you effectually call those who do not now love you and usher them into your family. We ask these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.